Welcome to Sidebar Canada, a podcast for new lawyers and law students who want to keep their fingers on the pulse of what's happening in Canadian law. This is Episode 2, Drunken Minds, Untangling the Implications of R.V. Sullivan. Hi, I'm your host, Tiffany Salampa, and today we are joined by Chris Redaniki. Uh, he is a lead appellant counsel at Canada's largest criminal defense firm, Rusnick, O'Connor, Robbins, Ross, and Angelini LLP. While he has experience in all types of criminal cases, he has a particular interest in police misconduct cases, criminal appeals, and racial justice litigation. Hi, Chris. How are you? I'm well. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks so much for taking some time to talk with us about the R.V. Sullivan case. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So I'll start with question one. Um, I've read the case uh, a little bit. It's a very long case. There's a lot going on in it. <laughs> so I thought it would be very helpful for our listeners, some of whom may have read the case, some of whom may have not, um, just to sort of go through what you consider are the most important facts and kind of just give an overview of what's going on in this case. Uh, yeah, so there are two defendants in this case, Sullivan and Chan. Uh, Sullivan uh, was living with his mother in a condo building and was uh, abusing uh, a drug called Welbutrin, which was um, supposed to help him stop smoking. And the drug caused him to believe that aliens called Archons were living in his condo. Uh, on one occasion, he consumed, he tried to commit suicide and consumed a number, like, like dozens and dozens of these drugs and uh, thought his mother was one of these aliens and, and uh, attacked her with a knife. Um, and he was charged with aggravated assault in relation to that incident. Uh, in Chan, um, it was a young guy who uh, consumed mushrooms with his friends. And then after about a half hour, his friends were feeling high. He wasn't, so he did some more mushrooms uh, and then entered into this sort of psychotic state where he thought you know, he was God or was either acting on God's behalf and that everybody else was demons. Uh, and then he goes over to his dad's house, which is just down the block, and unfortunately ended up stabbing his father uh, to death and uh, stabbing his mother as well. And he was charged with manslaughter and um, aggravated assault. Uh, Chan was acquitted uh, on the basis of uh, the fact that he was in a, a state of psycho- a psychosis, like he was not voluntary, his actions were not voluntary. Um, and uh, Sullivan was convicted um, because while while it was found that his his uh, actions were not involuntary, there was uh, that was held to be no defense because of Section 33.1 of the Criminal Code, and so that's where the Court of Appeal comes in in deciding both of these cases. Right. Okay. So just for a point of clarification for me, then, so if Mr. Chan was acquitted, why is he present in this in this appeal case? Just for the constitutional sort of arguments, or or is he looking for something more? The Crown appealed, right? So oh, the, the Crown the, the, appealed. The, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Different appellant. Uh, I see. I see. Okay. Mm-hmm. Great. Okay. So um, yeah. I mean, I think what struck what struck me about those facts specifically was that you know this is. They, they are arguing that Section 33.1 is unconstitutional. And, um, you know, these two cases are kind of, I guess, out of the ordinary in the sense that they're claiming intoxication, not with what someone or what a law student might consider as sort of traditional intoxication, which is alcohol. These are sort of, um, at least in Mr. Sullivan's case, as a prescribed, you know, medically prescribed um, drug. And then, of course, mm-hmm. Mr. Chen is doing sort of illegal, illegal um, other sort of substances. So um, I thought that that was quite interesting. I think that the intoxication argument, you know, in law school, we're taught a lot about sort of alcohol being one of the main one of the main sort of uses for this um, sort of mm-hmm. defense. Um, yeah. So there's a distinction to be made, I think. Um, I mean, so certainly I think it's open uh, in Davio that the, the sort of main case on this from the Supreme Court of Appeal 
from back in the day says that it's open for um, you know intoxication, extreme intoxication to oh. this degree to be made out um, by alcohol. But in, in this case, both drugs were not uh, were not alcohol. That's correct. Uh-huh. But there's a distinction to be made, I think, between intoxication per, like on its own, like just being uh-huh. drunk or being high. And yeah. extreme intoxication amounting to automatism. That's a much higher standard uh, yeah. that's required. And only where it's where it, it amounts to automatism are you going to get the remedy of an acquittal. Right. And I, and I think that's, yeah, that's what I was trying to get at exactly, which I think is why, you know, Section 33.1 comes into question here. Because it is, it, from my understanding, a little bit more blanket in that any intoxication you know, it, it has barred basically even these very extreme cases which we're seeing here. Um, and that's mm-hmm. why the court has kind of dealt with it. So why don't you um, talk a little bit about sort of the court's reasoning around why they thought Section 33.1 was and uh, Section 33.1 and, and the subsections um, were unconstitutional. And what do you think was most important to their to their holding on that point? Well, so I guess first a bit of background. Um, so uh, Section 33.1 came in the wake of Davio. Davio was a nasty sex assault case where the accused said, basically, I got drunk and I don't remember what happened. And then uh, I believe at trial he was acquitted on the basis, or maybe it was that he was convicted and the Supreme Court turned it around. But regardless, it was ultimately held that uh, he was entitled to lead evidence, uh, toxicological evidence, showing that he was in a state of automatism, even though he had induced it himself. Um, and that that, uh, you know, constitutionally, he was allowed to do that uh, in order to raise a doubt about the voluntariness of his actions. So Parliament introduces Section 33.1 because a lot of groups that uh, were dedicated to advocating the sexual autonomy and integrity of uh, women and children were obviously incensed, saying, like, you know, it's no excuse that someone's drunk when they commit a violent offense. In fact, we know that alcohol sure. often fuels violent offending. Mm-hmm. And so Parliament enacts Section 33.1, which says, um, you know, where you voluntarily intoxicate yourself, um, you cannot avail yourself of the defense of automatism, uh, provided that it's a violent offense. Basically, 33.1 says, you know, if you commit a violent offense and, and you do it because you were voluntarily self-intoxicated, uh, then it's no defense that you were in a state of automatism. And so that's what Sullivan and Chan uh deals with on the appeal, where they say that's not compliant, that that restriction on the defense of uh, automatism is not constitutionally compliant. And there's three reasons uh, why they say it's not. The first is that uh, it's a fundamental principle of justice that in the criminal law, you can't be convicted unless you voluntarily committed the act in question. That's part of the what we call the actus reus of the offense, the guilty act. Um, and when you're in a state of automatism, like when you're in these psychotic states, it's not in any meaningful sense. It's not you who's doing the thing. You are not voluntarily committing the act. Uh, and so uh, one, the first reason why Section 33.1 is unconstitutional is because uh, it limits, you know, where, where it requires a trier of fact where they may have a doubt about uh, one of the essential elements of the offense, whether or not you voluntarily willed the guilty conduct in question. They, they're still required to convict you. And so that's not constitutional. It's contrary to both um, the principle of fundamental justice that I just described and the presumption of innocence. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, second, the, the second problem is what they call the improper substitution breach. Uh, and so that's where Parliament says, well, you know, we're just going to substitute. So sure, you can't make out beyond a reasonable doubt that this person voluntarily, for example, in this case, stabbed somebody. But we can make out beyond a reasonable doubt that he, you know, intentionally uh, consumed uh, intoxicants, you know, for the purpose of being intoxicated, in this case, mushrooms. 
Um, and uh, effectively, what the, the Court of Appeal says is it's improper to substitute his, you know, his voluntariness for the self-intoxication um, for the voluntariness of the of the guilty act, in this case, the stabbing. Uh, and then the third, and in my view, the most obvious breach is the mens rea breach. So in criminal law, if you don't intend to do something, uh, generally speaking, mm-hmm. then uh, you can't be convicted of doing it. It's a defense. And what this, what this, uh, what 33.1 does is says, even though you didn't intend to do any of the guilty acts in question, we're still going to find you guilty. And that's, and that's, mm-hmm. um, that's not proper. Um, yeah. So that makes, that makes sense to me. And, um, it, it, it sounds very constitutionally sound that you can't obviously bar someone from from putting forward the the best defense that they can. Um, I think the court in this case also discussed um, whether so in, they, they held it unconstitutional. Section 33.1 was unconstitutional. And then they also looked at the section one justifications. Right. And they found that mm-hmm. this is too broad um, and, and that the courts or the parliament should have been a little bit more narrow, um, sort of blanket banning. Uh, of the whole class of defense is not is not constitutional and not fair, and there was no justification for that, despite, as you said, Section 33.1 coming into effect to sort of protect a certain class of victims. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, go ahead. So if I, if I can just say, I think I think what's going on here is a bit of uh, uh, imbalance between the different kinds of automatism that can be advanced in criminal law. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think there's any trouble. Uh, well, there is that's that's an overstatement. There, I think that there is certainly a principle basis, um, a clear principle basis for saying that somebody who is in a genuine state of automatism, you know, they've they've led expert evidence and they've proved beyond a reasonable, they've proved on a balance of probabilities to their jury or to their judge that this was this person was not meaningfully themselves at the time the criminal acts were committed, that it's improper to convict that person of a criminal offense. Like I think mm-hmm. that's a that's a clear that's clear in a lot of people's minds. Um, what's not clear is why, if you if you are uh, in a state of automatism because of mental disorder, so you are having a psychotic break or you are having uh, some kind of schizophrenic episode or something like that, um, there is a specific provision in the criminal code that says, sure, you're not going to be found guilty by reason because you committed it by, by reason of, uh, of mental disorder. Um, but we're still going to have all these different restrictions in place. We can detain you. We can uh, subject you to, to community supervision. There's all kinds of mechanisms in place for sort of controlling risk of this person once they've been found. And we call it NCR, not criminally responsible by, by mean of mental disorder. Those protections are not in place where someone is found um, not criminally responsible because of non-mental disorder automatism. So in other words, the drug-induced automatism. You just get an acquittal. And I think that's the that's the imbalance that goes to the heart of the unease uh, in this appeal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that if if Parliament were to legislate something along, the, I'm not inviting them to, but because there's all <laughs> kinds of other issues there. But if Parliament were to say, you know what, um, where someone is genuinely, uh, you know, they they are they have not voluntarily committed the act because of a non-mental disorder, automatism, an automatism that's brought about by some kind of intoxicant. Then you know maybe what we want is some kind of supervision to make sure this person is doing a drug treatment program that they're right. clean or or whatever some kind of mechanism for managing risk in the community um, that doesn't involve just locking the person up in jail right. uh, that um, can make sure that people you know the public is protected uh, and mm-hmm. that this person this person's right not to be convicted of an offense that they didn't intend to commit is still respected so that that mm-hmm. seems to me the clear out here. Right. A little bit of a kinder legal system, something that's a, that's a little less broad, broad brush, I guess, in dealing with with risk. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, again, the reason I, I hesitate to invite Parliament to do this kind of thing is because uh, my colleagues who practice in the review board realm, I think, would probably not characterize our mental health systems as very kind. Right. Um, but I think that there certainly is a, a world we can envision where the better response is rather than incarceration and criminalization mm-hmm. is support in the community uh, and support from uh, mental health professionals and and addiction professionals, because that mm-hmm. is what gets at the risky conduct here. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. So moving moving into sort of a slightly different space, a little little more legal adjacent, I guess, is um, obviously this case got a lot of media coverage. There was a, a lot of what a lot of lawyers saying questionable headlines floating around, um, basically saying that the court of, the court of appeal in Ontario has you know done a disservice to particularly sexual assault victims and anyone who wants to who is who is going to be coming to the justice system seeking seeking you know retribution against their intoxicated um, assailant. Um, what do you I mean, there was a lot of outrage, a lot of outrage around this case, a lot of a lot of media coverage. You know, the National Post had a headline that said, you know, Ontario court throws out a law barring self-induced intoxication as a defense. Um, the Canadian Lawyer magazine has said this is this is kind of this has widened the scope of the case that a lot of these headlines were misleading and have misled the public and created a lot of unnecessary outrage. Um, what do you think, you know, lawyers can do, I guess, in these situations to make to make headlines a little bit more true, to make sure the public has the right information and understands the the finesse or the fine fine details necessary in a case like this to sort of understand what you've just said, which is this is still a very high bar and um, there's a lot to be done in as far as dealing with sort of intoxication in the justice system. Well, I think the, I'll start by saying what we shouldn't be doing, um, which is being condescending and disrespectful to some of the concerns that animate. Sure the uh, the response that we've seen to the Sullivan and Chan decision. I mean, uh, I can completely understand why um, groups that represent the interests of vulnerable people would say, well, wait a second, does this just give license to anybody who decides to get drunk or get high, mm-hmm. commit violent offenses and not be held accountable? I mean, like that's a that's a legitimate question, I think. For sure. Absolutely. And it's, a, and it's it, I, I don't think we're going to win anybody over as criminal defense lawyers if we're saying, oh, you're ridiculous and you just don't know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of what we can do, I think I think explaining um, the, the 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 consequences of a criminal conviction, you know, if the, the 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 criminal law process is about fundamentally uh, whether or not we should lock this person in jail for, you know, especially in these kinds of cases where it's manslaughter and aggravated assault for, you know, years and years and years at a time. Is that yeah. the appropriate thing to do to this person? Um, you know, my personal view is that in the vast majority of cases, it's not. And certainly not where, you know, we can conclusively show like where the finding is, as, as was the case in both of these appeals, that this person, you know, was not voluntarily doing the crime that they're alleged to have done. Mm-hmm. Um so I think that's that's the the first step in framing the discussion is saying, like, you know, who do we want to be locking up? Do we want to be mm-hmm. locking up people who didn't intend to do the thing that they did? I don't think the answer is yes. Um, and then and then engaging and then going further as criminal lawyers, engaging on that broader policy question of, OK, so how do we uh, ensure that people who are uh, not criminally responsible by means of non-mental disorder, you know, self-intoxicated disorder? How do how do we make sure that those people um, that their risk that whatever risk they, they may present is managed and that um, you know vulnerable populations like women like children can be protected 
Uh, and the answer, I, I honestly think that the answer is, is very rarely found in the criminal law. Um, mm -hmm. But that's a question that I think at least bears asking. Sure. Yeah, well, that makes sense. And and I, I think you're right. Obviously, you know, as a woman, I, I see that the justice system can be, you know, it can be very difficult for someone who is a sexual assault or a rape victim totally. to, to come through the justice system. You know, they have to relive mm -hmm. that experience. They have to go through it. And so I understand that seeing something like this, you know, that looks like the court basically saying you don't matter to us. Um, is, is enraging. Um, you know, it's just, it's it's not right. But I think what how you've explained this case is that it doesn't necessarily mean that there's a slippery slope argument here that now everyone who claims that they had a few too many beers is going to suddenly be, you know, let off, <laughs> um, to use this colloquial term. Um, so I, I think it, I think you're right. It's important to sort of sympathize, but also to understand that there's a balance here between, you know, sensationalizing a, a case and actually just saying, okay, here's factual fact and here's what's going on and here's why you shouldn't be afraid of coming forward if you're a victim. Um, you know, the court is going to look at your case and your facts specifically alongside the law. Yeah, I just, I, you know, this, we're going to get into a broader conversation about no um, problem. <laughs> the way the law treats uh, sexual assault complainants generally. Um, and I think the first, the first the, the, again, the, the, the way our criminal law is structured, it's not a contest between the complainant and anybody else. It's mm -hmm. a contest between the state and the accused. Mm -hmm. uh, the complainant is a witness and a witness only. I mean, like, so, so other protections have been put in place um, for victim services and that kind of thing. But at the end of the day, in the fundamental structure of our criminal law, the complainant is just a witness. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the accused is the person who very rightly, uh, I think, uh, has all of the protections, uh, who can choose whether or not to testify, um, who, if they, if they do testify, has all kinds of uh, specific ways in which that their, their, um, their evidence is treated, uh, who's entitled to challenge vigorously all evidence put against them by the Crown, including the evidence of the, of the complainant. Um, and so that's, that's the sort of context that we're in. And that's why I, I just think that if we're going to talk about justice for complainants, the criminal law is just it's, it's just not where you're going to find it. <laughs> you right. know, like a, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. It seems to me that we want to if we want to talk about a building a, a society where uh, sexual assault uh, perpetrators are held meaningfully accountable, um, where um, the sexual assault survivors are, are vindicated and can feel safe in the future, um, where uh, the opportunities, uh, the structural opportunities for uh, committing sexual assault are reduced and the the patterns of predation that some may say are inherent in sort of modern uh, toxic masculinity uh, are are quashed. I mean, th none of the criminal law isn't going to do any of that. It's mm. mm. interesting. It's very interesting. Um, so I guess moving on to our final question for you, and this is a, a very broad question, um, and you're welcome to go with it wherever you feel. Um, the Crown has confirmed that they are going to seek appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada. Um, so obviously that, that makes sense. I mean, I think as soon as everyone saw this case come out, they figured it would get appealed to the highest court in the country. What do you think we're going to see there? Um, what, what do you think is going to be important there? And, and what do you sort of, if you had a, if you had a crystal ball, what, what do you think <laughs> the outcome would be uh, in that case? Uh, first, I want to say that I think I earlier misspoke. I think I said that Chan was acquitted uh, okay. at trial and he was not, he was convicted. So that, okay. that's my mistake early on. Um, but I, the crown is appealing, uh, the, you're right. The crown is appealing this case and rightly so. I think we need guidance from the Supreme court, uh, on, uh, on this issue. Um, I, I, we've got a lot of heavyweights like criminal law heavyweights at the Supreme court. Um, people who, like justice Moldaver, uh, who are, um, I think who just do not care about, <laughs> about public opinion. Like they're just going to do what they want to okay. do. 
um, yep. and uh, who, who, they're going to do what they think is the most principled thing. And I mm-hmm. suspect that that will result in uh, in Justice Pachaco's decision being upheld, uh, although it's okay. hard to project what the Supreme Court's going to do. There's nine of them, and you know they're 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 they are diverse in their opinions. I do think that probably there will be a either either in the majority judgment or in a concurring judgment um, a specific exploration of how this issue does impact on um, vulnerable complainants, uh, the survivors of sure. sexual assault. Or domestic violence for for whom there will be, I, I think it's important also to recognize there are going to be consequences here because there are going to be cases where mm-hmm. an accused is entitled to or, or where where before they wouldn't even be allowed to bring uh, this evidence into bear they're going to be allowed to to litigate it even if they don't win them being allowed mm-hmm. to litigate it will no doubt cause you know additional trauma and additional um, mm-hmm. you know stress for for all for mm-hmm. the for for complainants. Um, uh, so I think there's going to be some exploration of, of the way that this specifically impacts then. And I think, you know, really a lot of the blame with a lot of these provisions, not just in this context, but also in the context of like prior sexual activity or the essential elements of sexual assault or those kinds of those kinds of issues. A lot of the blame mm-hmm. rests with Parliament, but the criminal code is badly drafted. It's a mess. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. we've had to kind of cobble together the law based on based a bit on the common law, based a bit on the charter, based a bit on what the statute says. Um, but the, the the provisions of sexual assault in the criminal code really could use a rewrite, and so could the provisions that relate to uh, intoxication uh, by by drugs or alcohol, as it relates to as it relates to defenses. So I, I'm hoping that what we get from the Supreme Court is is an invitation to Parliament. And you know, I think almost you have to it, it, you start going into a, an improper realm where you tell Parliament how to legislate, and that's not really the court's role. Um, but even right. saying like, hey, Parliament, if this is your intention, you could do that. And that would be constitutional, right. or probably. Um, and I think you almost need to, to, to lead them to water and say, listen, uh, if you if w- what you're concerned about is safety here, why not think about, um, you know, uh, it not just being a full acquittal that obtains after a finding of automatism um, through non-mental disorder, uh, but but uh, a non, non-mental disorder automatism. Uh, but you know, have something like uh, like a, a community supervision program that makes sure the person is drug free and not a risk to the community. Like that, you, you might see those kinds of yeah. suggestions. I'm not sure if the court's going to go that far, but I do think at least they're going to consider um, the impact on vulnerable complainants. Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's really interesting, and, and obviously, and obviously, if Parliament wants to, um, you know, rewrite Section 33.1 after after the court has sort of said mm-hmm. it's unconstitutional, they can send questions to the Supreme Court on specific aspects of that afterwards, right? I mean, they've done totally. that in the past. Um, so I think I think it, I agree. The criminal code is is a mess. I, I study law in the UK where there is no criminal code, so it still seems miles better than than the situation in the UK. <laughs> but it, um, it definitely is there is space for improvement, and I think that a lot of people have been calling for improvement in the criminal code when it comes to sexual assault and rape and, and all kinds mm-hmm. of other um, sort of those sorts of uh, uh, crimes. Um, so yeah, no, the, I think that this case is gonna is gonna hopefully bring some much needed change to the criminal code, as you say, and 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 um, get us to an updated updated state on on the law for, for sexual assaults. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much, Chris, for your time. Um, this has been really insightful. I've learned a lot and I'm sure our listeners have as well. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to keep in touch with us or have an idea for a topic of a future episode, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at sidebar Canada or follow our Facebook page at sidebar Canada podcast. 
Sidebar Canada aims to provide useful and relevant commentary on developing legal issues, but is by no means a definitive source of information on the law or any other subject matter presented. Nothing discussed in this podcast constitutes legal advice or gives rise to a solicitor-client relationship. Whilst we endeavor to ensure the information presented is correct, no warranty, express or implied, is made as to the accuracy of the podcast content, and we do not accept liability for error or omission. Finally, the views expressed of the hosts and the guest speakers are their own and do not reflect on their employer or any other affiliated third parties.